Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Welcome. It's good to be in here with all of you. I want to remind you all again and really extend an invitation um, that on the 26th of this month, we're doing our, our church family picnic, um, which is exactly as the name implies. We're going to go out after the second service. We've got uh, a bluegrass band that's going to be there playing. We've got some fabulous food that's going to be here to eat together. Um, we're encouraging to bring yard games, so bring your can jam and your bags and all that stuff. And we're just going to be together in community. We're, we're going to spend some time as a church caring for each other. We really, uh, as we thought about this fall, the staff, we prayed about it, and we really felt like what we needed in this moment, in this season, was a time of caring for the family. Somebody asked me, hey, is this, is, can I bring my neighbor to this? And of course, like, absolutely, we would love for you to bring a neighbor or a friend to this, particularly if you think that one of the things that, that might speak into their lives is a sense of belonging and community. I think that's part of what they're going to experience about who we are and what we try to do. And, and this may be a great way to introduce them to your Chapel Street Church Mill Creek family. So if you haven't grabbed some of these or if you didn't get this in the mail last week, um, hopefully you did, but if you didn't, I have them out on the, in the lobby, various places, but mark your calendar for that. It's going to be a, a great day together, and we're excited for it. So um, we are now in our second week studying the gospel of Mark, and so if you were with us last Sunday or if you joined us um, online, we're going to take most of this, this year, meaning um, this church year, so September to really all the way up to Easter and, and be focused primarily on, on the Gospel of Mark with some, some breaks in there for Advent and other things. But we're going to be working our way through this book together as a community, which is, by the way, one of the reasons why we're offering these Mark journals. These are out in the lobby. I know that we sold out of these last week. And so if you did not get one, I really want to encourage you to pick one up today. The, um, this version of it has uh, a lined side next to the text where you can take notes, write, write down observations, things that you're learning. Um, the maroon one has kind of like, a, what do they call that, a dot journal or is something like that. It's, it's more blank pages, but either way, grab one of these. We're going to be studying together. This will give you space to take notes. It's a, a $5 donation. They're available. We ordered more. They're available at the welcome desk this morning. So love for you to pick one of these up. And one of the things that Mark is trying to address in the church, he's trying to deal with, is this question of who is Jesus. And Mark explores it in kind of a, a, a unique way. Um, maybe you've seen this before or you've noticed this, but one of the ways that um, movies or TV shows sometimes grab our attention is that the initial scene of the movie will basically be the conclusion. And so it'll start with the place of the end. So I was trying to think of examples of this this week, and the two that came to mind were both kids' movies. It was Megamind and Tangled. Um, 
But then I asked uh, people who watch adult movies, and, and somebody reminded me um, of Saving Private Ryan, where if you remember that movie, the, it begins at Private Ryan is visiting like Arlington Cemetery, and he is at the gravestones of the people who were sent to, to pull him out of, of the war. So it starts at the end. You have some awareness of how this story is going to end, and then it goes back and it kind of takes you through the story. Mark does something very similar here. He, he starts with the answer to the question. He, we're given some perspective that the characters that we're going to experience in this gospel don't have. And so we have this awareness of how it unfolds and, and the the things that we're watching them process have been revealed to us. So this is Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the very first words of the gospel. Mark gives us the answer to the question, who is Jesus? He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark gives away the ending. He says, I am writing this down so that you will have the good news about Jesus. That he is the long-awaited for Messiah. He, he is the Christ, the victorious king. He is the one who is the very son of God. But then in addition to that, he also introduces us really quickly in his gospel to the message that Jesus is proclaiming. So just a few verses down in verses 14 and 15, Mark records this. He says, now after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee. This is, again, this, is, this idea of the gospel. Is a, it's a political term. It's a proclamation of good news. It's a proclamation from a king. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, according to Mark, he's saying he is the announcement. As Pastor Jeff put it last week, the king is here telling us about his kingdom. Right, so you and I, we, we, we get to read this with the benefit of Mark's opening line. It's a story about Jesus, the, the saving king, the son of God. But now as we work our way through this gospel together, we get to see what the, the disciples, what the men and women who are following Jesus, with the, the people who are hearing him teach, how they are understanding who this person is. And how they're starting to put the pieces together and how it's starting to form and shape in their hearts and minds as they wrestle with the question, who is this guy? What, what, what is he doing here? And what are we to make of him? So we're going to turn to Mark chapter 2. If you have your journals with you, this is on page 12. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, I, it's, it's in there. Um, and, and we're going to start there. But before we do this, I want to just, I want to go back slightly. Because just prior to the encounter that we're going to read about today, there's another encounter. And Mark, again, if you remember, like he uses this word immediately over and over and over again. It's an action gospel. And, and already in Mark chapter 1, you, you see Jesus going straight to business. And so just prior to what happens here in Mark chapter 2, Jesus has this encounter with a man who is um, diseased and from leprosy. And this man has the audacity 
to risk everything, which he really has very little to lose in all honesty, to approach Jesus in the hope of being healed, which was absolutely not done because he put those people at risk. It was an infectious disease. And so he approaches Jesus in order to see if the stories he heard are true. Maybe this is his one last chance at at returning to some semblance of, of a normal life. And then Jesus, in response to him, what is done, he does what is absolutely not done after this guy did something that's absolutely not done. He touches him. I mean, by the Old Testament law, Jesus is now unclean. You have had an encounter with an infectious disease that put the people at risk, and you, you have made yourself unclean, except for that's not what happens. Instead of this man's disease making Jesus unclean, Jesus' cleanliness, his righteousness, is transferred instead to this person. The disease is gone. Now imagine just seeing that. Imagine even just hearing the story. Imagine for a moment that you are a man who has lived with paralysis maybe all your life, and you just heard that somebody with leprosy approached Jesus, and Jesus with a single touch completely healed them. As you might imagine, Jesus's reputation is starting to build, and crowds are starting to gather and this is where we pick up the story this is in mark chapter 2 verse 1 it says when he returned to capernaum after some days it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room not even at the door and he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men and when, they, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were questioned, uh, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise up, take your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Here's somebody living an incredibly difficult life. The result of this, this physical ailment that he has, but news is beginning to spread about this, this Jesus guy who, rumor has it, is able to heal people with just a touch or a word. And, and, and maybe this story about the guy with leprosy that, that approached Jesus, maybe it's true. 
And so in his mind, as he deals with his own ailment, he's beginning to ask himself the question, what if? What if I could get to Jesus? What if he did the same thing for me? So this morning, I want to look at this text, and I I want to consider it first from the perspective of the paralytic, and I want to talk about the approach that he brings to Jesus. And then we'll conclude by looking at at Jesus' response to him. It begins with an act of desperation. This is the first thing we see, an act of desperation. I, uh, um, over the years of, of being a pastor, I've had the opportunity and, and really the privilege to walk alongside families in this church as, sometimes as they share their best moments and sometimes as they're in the midst of their worst. And, um, and one of the ways that, one of the things I've experienced is walking alongside of families dealing with addiction. Maybe some of you have, have done something similar, and I'm not an addiction counselor. It's not something I do. I, I do pastoral counseling, but I'm not a trained therapist. And so my role pastorally is just to kind of come alongside and support and walk alongside. And I've learned some things as I've um, met with families and met with addiction counselors and been a part of this process in, in people's lives. And one of the things that I've come to understand is that for so many people, recovery to addiction begins at a place of desperation. You've heard the phrase, like, they, they have to hit rock bottom, right? There, there's something that's got to happen in their lives that, that says, if I don't deal with this, I risk losing everything. They need to become desperate. See, desperation is a catalyst for transformation. Desperation is a catalyst for transformation. We don't know a great deal about this person in this text here. We don't know if he was born with paralysis. We don't know if this was a result of some sort of accident. We know that he had four friends, which is actually somewhat telling because oftentimes when somebody dealt with this type of physical ailment in that culture, the belief was that you have done something to offend God. You've sinned in such a, a, a great manner that this is the result of your own actions or somebody around you. So oftentimes the result of this was, was isolation. It was people sort of removing themselves from you. But this guy, he, he seems to have people around him. And, and they know how desperate he is. In fact, they may share in that desperation with him. But the problem is that the word about Jesus is spreading. His access is becoming limited. Verse 2 says, Many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. So as they approach this opportunity to see Jesus, as they come to a house, they recognize they're not going to get in. So they go to plan B, and plan B is to get their friend up on the roof, which, as you can imagine, was no small feat when you're carrying an adult up on the roof with you. They're at a house that is not theirs. Um, in fact, some, some uh, scholars believe that this is likely where Jesus lived. This is Jesus' house. And so um, they're at Jesus' house, and they make the decision, we're going to do whatever it takes to get our friend to Jesus. And that alone was not as easy as you might imagine. The, the roofs in this time were made out of a, a combination of reeds and thatch that was packed with clay. And so it was, it was actually structural. 
You, you, families could use the roof of their house somewhat like we might use a deck. It would be, you might go out there for an evening meal, um, a way to escape the heat and the cool of the evening. And so it wasn't like they could just take off a shingle or two and drop him down. And they, they had to work their way through this roof. And that didn't stop them. Because they're desperate. Let's think for a moment about, about what it means to be desperate. In fact, what are the ingredients, if you will, in this story of desperation? First, I think what we discover here is what's driving the desperation is that this is a, this is a man who has an accurate understanding of his condition. Desperation begins with an accurate understanding of, of, of a condition, and many of us are familiar. Maybe you've heard this for a loved one or for someone close to you. Maybe some of you have heard it yourselves. When a doctor approaches you and says, there's nothing more that we can do. Somebody says to you, we've exhausted all our options. Desperation comes in the awareness of our limitations. Desperation is, is the result or the acknowledgement of our inability. So desperation happens at the cross-section of humility and honesty. The paralytic understood his condition. It was obvious to, to anybody who saw him. And this is why he's so desperate to get to Jesus. By the way, this, this sense of desperation, this is an, an awareness of need. I think that this is one of the pitfalls of suburbia, of, of living in affluence. is because oftentimes we have the means to mute and soften our desperation so we can hide it from each other worse off we can we can hide it from ourselves that's not good we need to be painfully aware of our need because it's in the awareness of our need that we approach jesus which is the second ingredient it's it's the awareness of my need and in the realization of the ability of Jesus. This is the second thing that we see. It's an accurate understanding of the ability of Jesus. He comes to him because he has this sense of what Jesus is able to do. He's, he can do what this person can't. So for this man and for his friends, their only hope is to get him to Jesus and they're going to do whatever it takes to make that happen, including ripping the roof off a house right it's a good thing jesus was a carpenter i guess right i think one of the things to pay attention to as we work our way through the gospel of mark together take note of the people who are seeking jesus out because I think oftentimes, and, and not exclusively, but oftentimes what we'll discover about these people is that they're desperate people. It's that it's, it's, it's a tax collector who's hated by everyone in his community. It's a man with leprosy whose only alternative is to get to Jesus or risk dying alone. It's a woman who, whose only means of survival is to sell her own body as a sex worker who comes to Jesus. It's the poor and the marginalized. It's the ignored. They're aware of their condition. They're desperate 
because they get it. Because they're able to see their need with clarity and they have a conviction that Jesus is the only one that he offers some sort of hope that they lack outside of themselves. So the question for us this morning is what's our level of desperation? What is your level of desperation? Because when we lack, even as followers of Jesus, if we don't understand our desperate need for Jesus, when we lack desperation for Christ, if we're apathetic or we're indifferent, it's because we have not understood our condition or we have not understood him. When, when we are indifferent towards Jesus, apathetic, if we as a church ever come to the conclusion that we can keep this ball rolling, we can keep this thing going, we can keep taking ground and impacting communities and 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 if we think that we can do that because we're smart and gifted and we have it together um we're just a step away from being irrelevant and insignificant we have to be desperate for him which is by the way i honestly think this is one of the opportunities that's presented itself in covid is that I, my sense, and I've had interactions with people to, to kind of tell me this, but the life that so many of us lived pre-COVID, the, the time of isolation and being away, it, it undid some things. It removed some security markers in our lives. And there's a sense amongst people, I think this is probably true. Maybe it's true for you, but I think it's true for neighbors and friends and family members that are saying the way that I lived life, how I approach things, this this isn't working. And people, I think, are seeking, genuinely seeking. And some are coming in the hopes that maybe Jesus provides, provides an opportunity, that he has the ability to do what they can't. This is the second thing that we see in this text here, in this man's approach to Jesus, and that's an act of faith. So it's an act of desperation, and it's an act of faith. Verse 5, he says this. Mark writes this. He says, when when Jesus saw their faith, which I think is interesting because he's, he's seeing the faith of the paralytic, but he also sees the, the corporate faith of the friends who share that with them. Let's, let's get this person to Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Here's the question that I want us to wrestle with briefly here today. Is what is faith and what does faith look like? Oftentimes for me, like pastorally, when I'm, I'm processing a question like that my knee-jerk reaction is to kind of go to a theological definition so I want to flip over to the book of Hebrews and I want to talk about faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen and and that's right and good or we could go to Pauline epistles and we could talk about other theological definitions of faith but one of the one of the things that the gospel gives us that I think we need to sit in it's sometimes it gives us a definition. It gives us a visual lived definition of faith. What does faith look like in Mark chapter 2? It looks like four guys ripping the roof off a house that isn't theirs to get their friend to Jesus. Okay, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I've been processing this um, expression of faith 
over those last few weeks and, and recognizing that this is something that God is, is teaching me in my heart and life. As I have entered into this new stage of parenting um, that I don't like everything about, as, as I have adult-ish children, um, one who is, is up at school, another who's a senior in high school, and um, my youngest is, is in eighth grade and I still tell her everything she's gonna do and where she's gonna go, that's fine. But the other two, um, if you know my youngest, you know that's, that's hilarious because that's not how it goes at all. But um, you, my oldest two, I'm, I'm living in this stage of parenting where I don't have the degree of control that I used to have or thought I used to have. And I'm, I'm, I don't like it as much because it's, they're not always under my roof. I don't have the same degree of control that I once have. And and, and literally over the summer, the Lord was sort of like working on my heart to say, Sterling, just, you have to bring them to me. Like my, my not, it's not that I've lost all influence in my daughter's life. It's not that at all. But, but it's different. And faith as it relates to how I parent my daughters is, is I, gotta, I have to bring them to Jesus and say, I trust you with them actively. I have to lay them at the feet of, of my Savior and say, I know that you love them more than I do. And I know that your ability can speak into the things that I am unable to speak into. Faith in Mark chapter 2, it's, it's a description of desperation put into action. Maybe you're experiencing this up. Faith is, is doing whatever it takes to lay myself at the feet of Jesus and say, I trust you. So I bring my marriage and I say, I trust you. I, I bring my financial situation and I say, I trust you. I bring the health and well-being of my family and my friends and I bring it to Jesus and I say, I trust you in this. I, I bring my career in the midst of COVID and I lay it at his feet and I say, I trust you. I bring everything hope that I have for the future and I put it at the feet of Jesus and say you are good I can trust you with this it's within a an awareness of of my need and a conviction of his ability and his character and his authority I say I can bring it to Jesus so what we say and see in this text is we see faith being lived out and Jesus sees their faith, and he responds, and, and this is an act of healing. Jesus' response to an act of desperation, to an act of faith, is, is to respond in healing. Back in verse 5, he says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose 
and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I love how that passage ends. We have never seen, we have never seen anything like this. I, uh, um, like most kids, spent a good part of my childhood, right, out on the playground playing with friends and neighbors and uh, students at school, whatever, and um, there's a law that is uh, on the playground, right, and that's the law of prove it. So if you're like, if a bunch of guys are together and you're bragging about like how far you can throw a baseball or how high you can jump or how fast you can run, which is, that's what we did. Um, the answer to that was always prove it. You have to show that this is capable, that you're able to do this. And if the guy walked away and he didn't do it, then you kind of knew he's, he's, I've got to think of the right phrase here, <laughs> uh, making stuff up. Uh, and if, if he, he could do it, he would, he would show it. He would demonstrate it. Like this moment is, is it's a prove it moment here for Jesus. Right? Remember that you and I, we're reading this with the insight of what Mark has, has already told us. What he's told us about who Jesus is. But the people that are sitting in that house, the, those who are, they're, they're still putting all of this together. They're still trying to figure out who he is and what he's here to do. And this is, this is a prove-it moment. Notice a couple things in this interaction. First is, it's important to understand that Jesus sees the need behind the need. Jesus sees the need behind the need. The man comes to Jesus because he can't walk. But Jesus responds to him by meeting a greater need. And that is the condition, not of his physical life, but the condition that sin has left him in. Right? You and I, we often approach Jesus with the symptom. And that's not to say, again, that his paralysis was the result of his sin or anybody else's sin. And, and it may be the very same thing for us, but oftentimes I approach Jesus with the symptom, but what Jesus wants to deal with, what he wants to encounter in my life is the source. Jesus sees that this man is... is his most pressing need has nothing to do with his physical condition, but rather his spiritual condition. See, so you and I, we must be willing to let Jesus go deeper into our lives than we first ask him to. We have to be willing to let Jesus go deeper into our lives than we've even invited him into. Why? And this is the second thing we notice here. Because Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. He has the authority to forgive sin. This is why this, this story, this miracle is so audacious. This is why the scribes sitting there watching all of this unfold get so upset. We're, Mark is trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? These scribes are sitting there asking themselves the question, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? See, the ability to forgive sins, that, that rested exclusively with God. Old Testament priests could proclaim God's forgiveness after somebody has gone through what, what God asked them to go through in the temple. But to be able to stay overtly, your sins are forgiven, that rested entirely with God. By what authority 
do you say to this person, your sins are forgiven? Jesus is answering the central question. He's revealing who he is. He's not there to speak about God. He's not even there speaking on behalf of God. He speaks with all the authority of God because he is God. This is God incarnate. This is God in flesh. And to prove it, he tells a paralyzed man to pick up his mat and to walk out. And he does. You see, this encounter with Jesus, this is not about the miracle of movement. It's, it's about the one who has the authority to look at the paralytic and to say to him, your sins are forgiven. It's about the one when we bring to him our greatest need, looks at you and I and says, I forgive your sins. And I want to I wrap up with this. Our title for this whole study of the Gospel of Mark is, we've called it Following the King. And inherent in this idea of following the king is the question of authority. And it's not just any authority. It's the very authority of the creator God. This is why this question of who is Jesus matters so much. It's why if we're off on that question, we're off on everything. Because the scribes were right. Because if, if, if Jesus isn't, if he doesn't wield all the authority of God himself, then he has no right to say to that man, your sins are forgiven. It would have been blasphemy. But if he is God, as evidenced here, then he is our ultimate authority. And we can't only trust him to forgive our sins, but we can trust him with our entire lives. And you guys, this is going to be the invitation throughout our study of the gospel mark. This is going to challenge us and push us and cause us to think about what does it mean to live as a follower of Jesus, as the one who has authority. Because here's the deal. There really is no middle ground. C.S. Lewis famously made this point. I won't put the quote up today, right? But we, we either have to look at this and say, you know what? The scribes were right. He had no right to say that to that person. He doesn't have the authority. And he should be either ignored and dismissed. Or we say he is who Mark says he is. He, this is the, the gospel of Jesus. The one who is the Christ, our King. And if he is who he says he is, then, then we should follow him in, in every obedience and we should worship him as our king. So that's how we're going to conclude our service today. In just a moment, the worship team is going to join me up here and we're going to enter, come to the Lord's table together and enter into a time of communion. If you didn't get one of these, um, raise your hands real quick. If you'd like to participate with us this morning, the ushers will, will make sure you have one. If you need one, just put a hand up and they'll get this to you. But if you're new with us or a guest, I just want to remind you that this is not a Chapel Street thing. This is, this belongs, the table belongs to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you're welcome to participate with us. If you are here and you're still exploring this whole question of who is Jesus, that's absolutely okay. I invite you to just observe, take it in, allow this to speak to how we understand who Jesus is and why we worship him together.
And I'm going to pray for us, and then our worship team is going to lead us, and then I'll return to guide us in the taking of the elements. Let's pray together. Father, we do just thank you for this text. We thank you for the time to be able to explore together more this question of who you are. And Lord, as we, even in our own hearts and minds, continue to piece together a fuller understanding of you, Lord, we want to come to your table today to be reminded that you are the one who has the authority to forgive sins. And you would do that through your death and resurrection. You would accomplish that on a cross. And so, Lord, invite us again to have our greatest need met by you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.